So the part of the uh, Satipatthana Sutta that deals with Vedana is actually quite brief. And you can see that um, this is the direct path, so the Buddha is being kind of um, very straightforward in how he's marching us through the four foundations of mindfulness. But there are, are other discourses where he expands upon the topics. And so this is, um, it's sort, of, this is sort of like going down the backbone of the practice, but then there are all these ways of rounding out each area. So there is another uh, discourse uh, called the Arrow Sutta, sometimes called the Dart Sutta, sometimes called the Two Arrow Sutta and the Two Dart Sutta, <laughs> depending on how you want to uh, translate it. Before I get into it, I just want to say that when you read um, current translations of the Buddha's discourses, the word Vedana is often translated as feeling or feeling tone. And I found that I was trying to understand this foundation for a long time. And the word feeling and feeling toned um, was not helpful because it was, it kept pointing me towards emotion. So I'm having a pleasant emotion about this. I'm having a pleasant emotion about that. I was like, but they say it's actually in the object. And I don't know if I'm having a pleasant object of oh, emotion about this. Anyway, so feeling tone, feeling this, for that reason, this particular foundation of mindfulness was murky for me. And I was, it wasn't really clicking. And then when I saw what Vedana was, um, I just decided to stick with the Pali word Vedana and tune my understanding of this Pali word into this quality that you can actually taste the pleasure of experiences, taste the pain of experiences, and taste the neutrality of it. So that's why I've stuck with the word Vedana, but as you do your own exploration, as you hear other teachers talking, if they start talking about feeling or feeling tone, they might be talking about Vedana. They also may be talking about feelings as if they're emotions, so that's why it's confusing. And it's one of, my, one of the things I'm going to do for Western Buddhism is I'm just very steady. I'm going to insist that we use this word Vedana. It's a perfectly good word. <clears throat> Another thing that happens is that in this practice, when we get really up close and personal with our experience in this retreat form, we often end up having an individualized understanding of the Dharma because we're quiet. I don't know your experience. You don't know my experience. And we're not talking about our combined experiences. So the most intensive part of Western Dharma for many people is being alone, supported by others on retreat, and then tossed out in the world to do your own interpretations with people who have no idea what you're talking about. So because this is a retreat, we can um, look at the consequences of our relationship to Vedna and how they play out in the world. Um, we can have that conversation on this retreat as a collection of people who know the practices, which is one of the beautiful, rare things about this style of a retreat, is that you're talking to people who have understand the basics and really are fine-tuning your understanding. So we're going to take Vedna in a larger direction. But first I want to um, draw out some from this sutta called uh, the Arrow. It's in a collection of the Buddha's discourses 
or the, the larger collection is called the um, Samyutta Nikaya. And it's the, he has a whole bunch of discourses on a topic. And so you actually can find something like 73 discourses on Vedana, all under one heading. And they're all very similar, so it's not like you're, one's vastly different than the other. But as you talk to different people in different circumstances about Vedana, they create a collection. This is the Vedana collection. But this is probably the most famous. Many people know the gist of this, but when you actually get in deeper into the sutta, there's a lot here. I was surprised when I read the entire sutta versus just the gist of it. So the gist of it is that there's no way to live a life without experiencing some painful vedana. So we all get, and that's called the first dart. You're just walking along and someone shoots an arrow at you or something shoots an arrow at you and you feel painful vedana. There's a second layer of suffering and that's the suffering we have that we got shot at all. So our inability to meet the fact that we stumbled across something painful, we then have a second layer of reactivity which is actually compounding the pain you feel because you got the first one. And the whole of the path can be seen as how do we live only being shot every now and then by one arrow. And that's a, a, a wise relationship to the first noble truth. Painful experiences come. And how do we stop shooting ourselves, really, with these second arrows of all the agitation and pain that comes because we can't come to terms with the fact that a human life is vulnerable to experiencing pain. So that's that's the gist of it. But then there's a lot more in this actual sutta. It's in the Samyutta Nikaya 36.6. If you do a Google search on the arrow, Buddha, the arrow, it comes up. <laughs> so the discourse goes like this. Bhikkhus, ordinary people experience pleasant Vedana, painful Vedana, and neutral Vedana. Well-instructed disciples also experience pleasant Vedana, painful Vedana, and neutral Vedana. So what is the difference? What is the distinction? What distinguishing factor is there between the the well-instructed disciples and ordinary people? So just in that opening paragraph, there's a huge aha that no matter how much you practice, you're also going to experience pleasant Vedana, painful Vedana, and neutral Vedana. So there's some secret hope in all of us that if we put in our time, we can get away from all unpleasant experiences. And there's some romantic ideal that there's a way we can actually unwire every pain neuron in our body so that no matter what happens, we don't, or they don't get triggered, I have all these neurons, but life never triggers them ever again. Like, no, actually, there's no way to do that, whether you're well-instructed or uh, ordinary, uninstructed. You feel these, uh, these three types of Vedana. But there is a distinguishing factor. So the, uh, the monks that he's talking to at the time say, for us, sir, the teachings have the venerable one as their root, their guide, and their arbiter. It would be good if the venerable one himself were to uh, explicate the meaning of this statement. 
having heard from the venerable one, the beagles will remember it. Buddha says, okay, in that case, listen and pay close attention and I will speak. And they respectfully say, as you say. So now he's going to talk about the difference between ordinary people and people who have practiced a long time. The Venerable One Son, the Venerable One said, when touched with painful Vedana, ordinary people then also experience sorrow, grief, lamentation, beat their chest and become distraught. So they feel two pains, a physical pain and a mental pain. Just as if a person were shot with an arrow and right afterward they were shot with another one. So they would feel the pain of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with painful Vedana, ordinary people sorrow, grieve, lament, beat their chest and become distraught. So they feel two pains, a physical and a mental. He goes on later to say, a well-instructed person does not sorrow, grieve, lament, beat their chest or become distraught. So it is as if they are only shot by one arrow and right afterwards they are not shot with a second arrow. That is the distinction. He goes on to say, as they, the ordinary people, are touched with painful Vedana, they become resistant. Then in they who so resist painful Vedana, an underlying tendency of resistance against painful Vedana comes to underlie their mind. Touched by painful Vedana, they yearn for sensual pleasure. Why is that? Because the ordinary person does not know any escape from painful Vedana aside from pleasurable experiences. Then in those who seek pleasure, an underlying tendency to craving for pleasant Vedana comes to underlie their mind. They do not know as it actually is present the arising and ending of Vedana. Then they who lack that knowledge, then uh, in they who lack that knowledge, an underlying tendency to ignore neutral Vedana comes to underlie their mind. So because there's not an understanding of how to work with painful Vedana, the only escape is pleasant Vedana. And if that's the escape, then neutral Vedana gets ignored because it doesn't help get one further from unpleasant Vedana. And then this creates underlying tendencies and the tendencies become very strong. And in the teachings of dependent origination, these tendencies are are what form our personalities, what form our sense of self, if they're rigid, if they're not skillful, if they're coming from an inability to meet life uh, on its direct, on direct terms. When they experience painful, pleasant Vedana, painful Vedana, or neutral Vedana, they feel it as one fettered by it, chained to it. Such a one, bhikkhus, is called an ordinary person who is fettered by birth, old age, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair. They are fettered by suffering, this I declare. That tendency, when it reifies, it sets you up struggling and that struggling never wins because reality just keeps rolling on and anicca sets in and no matter what you set up to prevent unpleasant experiences, 
will arise and pass. Whatever you set up to secure yourself to pleasant experiences will arise and pass. And so from that, you actually go through the suffering relationship of birth and death versus being in a more fluid relationship to the stream of experiences. The second half of the discourse goes on to describe what happens when you don't resist uh, painful experiences. Then you don't create the underlying tendency that doesn't reinforce craving, that doesn't reinforce ignoring neutral Vedana. If I were stuck on a desert island with 10 suttas, this would be one of them. <laughs> because it's, uh, it points to our struggling with them, but also to have us investigate why is it so difficult for me to sit with pain? It's because by this point in my life, there's a strong underlying tendency to resist pain. And it's just the strangest thing that I've now lived 47 years on the planet and I've planned my next year being a teacher with many commitments over the next year, next two years. But none of my plans include pain. <laughs> I worry sometimes about overdoing it and getting sick. That's about as much as it comes. But pain always has come every year. And yet each year I'm always surprised when it comes. It always feels like a rude intruder upon the life I am trying to live. Yet it rudely intrudes all the time. And I don't, I don't kind of forecast it. Or if I do, it's really inaccurate. It's, it's all these fantasizing pains. When they become realities, it's a different experience than the ones I've fantasized about. So there is an underlying misattunement to the fact that pain arises in life. Some part of it is natural. Some part of it is afflicted upon you by others. But it's, it's a part of the human journey. And so we have to mature our relationship to it, at least not reinforce this um, rejecting, resisting of it. At least the first arrow, being able to meet your first arrow experiences without going into a lot of mental pain around the fact that you've had this more direct uh, first layer of an upsetting experience, a painful experience. So I want to explore as a group is, um, you'll get to explore for yourself what your individual relationships to pain and pleasure are. You can explore that on retreat. You can explore that in your own personal practice. You can explore what happens in your ordinary life and you can see back at home what strategies you have that um, keep pain at bay, um, try to invite you to be as close as possible to pleasurable experiences and how you deal with neutral experiences. But something that's actually very insidious and something we can put our attention on is what happens when we start getting into collective management of our pain, our pleasure, and our neutrality. Mm. And what happens is that <clears throat> because nobody likes pain and people like pleasure and they're willing to sacrifice some pleasure to avoid pain as they experience it, you start getting social agreements 
you start getting collective norms. And those collective norms are to keep us from what we assume is painful to us personally and what we perceive as painful collectively. And maybe there's some wisdom. Not all collective norms are diluted. But often they are. And if they aren't examined, they're most likely diluted. Most likely not seeing things clearly. And so then we create social forms that actually um, perpetuate our suffering, perpetuate our confusion. We think the actual, if you're in a, um, a dominant culture and you're liking the norms as they are, and you see people resisting those norms because they don't work for them, they don't work for their culture, then because you actually have the, the sense of entitlement and dominance, you push back. And you can see cultures pushing back on what other people might see as progress. Progress in opening up our cultural forms so that um, we don't have institutionalized or structured suffering. And it takes wisdom and insight to see uh, how that happens. So this is something we can actually, it's not happening somewhere else. It's actually happening every experience we're going through. We're having an individual experience, but we're also participating on a collective level in almost every experience, unless you're walking by yourself off in the woods somewhere. But even that might have a, have a collective um, aspect to it. Why are you out in the woods walking by yourself? That might be what your culture does with its pastime. So being able to actually bring our attention up to this and see it in operation gives us then choice. This is actually, these norms are not the ones, they don't actually match my values. They're just unexamined instinctual norms. And if I don't examine them, I'll end up participating and reinforcing them. So if we look at, um, if we look at Spirit Rock, let's be bold. Let's call it here and now and not theoretical elsewhere. What's the, what are the dominant um, cultures? What are the dominant cultures that get to set the norms here at Spirit Rock? Diversity. So you think that diversity is, a, is becoming a, a dominant form? Yes. Um, that's interesting. <laughs> I can see that there's a value for it. I can see diversity is, is attempting to become it, but I also see that it's pushing against um, older norms. So there's a, there's a struggle going on there. Other folks? White privilege. So the, um, the Northern European standards, uh, Northern, the Northern European American standards are a dominant um, way that that culture is sort of laid down. What are the norms that make us feel comfortable? And then everybody has to conform to that. So I would agree. Yeah. Following the rules here. Silence, sitting in a certain way, not making eye contact. Yeah. So there's a lot of norms around the silent retreat form. And those people who that works for they actually get to participate as successful members of our community. And for those people where that actually doesn't work for them, 
they can be unconsciously seen as problem people. Problem people because they're not conforming to the norms. Why can't you be silent? Why can't you just do your own thing, walk back and forth 10 steps at a time? Why are you deviating from the norms that we've set down here? Done consciously is a training. Done unconsciously, it lends itself to judgment. And also done consciously, you can say, is that the best form for all the types of people who are coming here? There are some uh, Buddhist traditions, um, thinking of the Dharma punks right now, against the stream community. They've taken on five rhythm dancing as a way of knowing their bodies, of re-relating to their bodies, and they all love it. I'm not sure if they all love it. Every person I know is a devout practitioner of five rhythms dancing, and they do five rhythms dancing as a, you know, as a mindful bodily activity on their retreats. Guess how much five rhythm dancing happens on the upside of this campus? If you're guessing zero, you're right, except I've heard that on the women's retreat, they are starting to say, this actually doesn't work. We're finding it too confining. There's a part of ourselves that we're asked to put, put aside, and yet as I wake up, I can't put more of me aside. How do I actually meet more of me here? Is the cultural norm, as it's come over, is this the right way to do our Vedana management? Is, are these conscious tendencies, are they the best for all people who are coming? I've rocked the Buddha a couple times in the meditation hallways. You've rocked the Buddha? Yeah. You mean you've danced or you've actually picked him up and you shook him? retreat. <laughs> da- doing dancing retreats. Yeah. And <clears throat> it's quite unusual. And then because we all know we can get a sense what the norms are, if you're not if you haven't given yourself full permission, which is hard to do, you then end up measuring yourself off these norms and then struggling to see whether what you're doing is right or not, depending upon the, um, the, the norms that have been established. So, yeah. The fundamental collective cultural norm uh, is exactly against uh, something and can be expressed uh, by one single word enjoy enjoyment mm. that is a uh, there is a sort of uh, collective uh, super ego that uh, command you must enjoy as uh, this allows you to be happy and this allows functioning of the economic system and uh, and this is uh, also related to important symbolic uh, underpinnings hmm. enjoy hmm. Yeah. what about the precepts are those the cultural norms the precepts have been taken on as um, cultural norms and you can, again, see them as possible um, wise trainings and to have norms around not killing. And you can also see it as something that's unconsciously um, uh, pressuring people to kind of conform and that that may not work for them. There are, um, 
there are rules that we have. And it's interesting to see um, what rules benefit what people. Chances are, if you're in the dominating culture, you kind of think your norms are universal. They kind of make sense. And if you're not in the dominating culture, it's pretty obvious the strain that those norms end up creating. But the dominating culture um, has assumed cultural power to keep establishing norms. And one of the one of the sad things is that people who come through don't feel met by the culture here, but could love the wisdom if they came at it in the way that respected their their cultural approach to these same wisdoms. Would come through and say, "Yeah, Spirak, it's that kind of Northern European repressed, quiet, introverted norming that thinks that everybody should be like that." Yet mindfulness doesn't say repressed. Mindfulness doesn't say always be quiet. There's times being mindful and being communicative, times of mindfulness and singing. I've checked out mindfulness and singing and it's totally compatible, but it's not the norms here. So I'm curious about other, calling out other, some of the, the norms here, some of the, the cultural trends, yeah. the dominating cultural trends. My first retreat at Spirit Walk Rock um, was an LGBT retreat, and we danced and did performance in all, in all of the sessions where we broke silence, and there was a way uh, um, that became a, a norm in the community for that week. Um, and it is, and because um, dance and performance is really important to me. It is something that actually supported my coming back to Spirit Rock. Right. So, and, and as you speak it now into the realm, it also is helping me to be more present. Yeah. One of the, one, it's, uh, it's one of the saddest things is that when the dominating group stops dominating, or when the individual stops having these underlying tendencies rule you, the waking process is not one of loss, but it's one of gain. That we all get to feel whole in the room. And every time I'm in a room full of whole people, I'll always choose that over ones where people feel repressed or contained or not there, except unconsciously, I will participate. I will participate in ways that reinforces those norms unless I'm willing to wake up to them. So I'm willing to look at possibly what's happening is a reinforcement of it. So there, there are certain norms um, that can easily be called out is that there's, there's male dominance in our greater culture and there's still male dominance here at Spirit Rock. There's, there's unconscious defaulting to men as authority and the way that men articulate the Dharma here um, tends to hold more power than the way women articulate the Dharma here. That, there's no fundamental truth to that um, as far as actually being wise, but there's an unconscious tendency towards that. When you look into it, there's, in it is actually Vedna management. So male dominance in a society 
is Vedana management. If you look into it, if you feel into it, you can see that people are um, feeling out what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, what's neutral. How do I manage this? How do I manage myself? How do I give myself the access to what I feel most comfortable with? And then a dominating group takes over and creates the norms. There's um, the white privilege is a dominating norm here. And white people have set the standards of what Western Buddhism at Spirit Rock should look like. It's being challenged and it's being appropriately challenged and it's painful to get in there to these challenges. Um, it's painful to, because there's like a, even though it's misshapen, it's, com- it's grown comfortable or familiar and the re-straightening of it is uncomfortable. When I get re-straightened, it's almost always uncomfortable and yet I find I breathe deeper. I think, oh, I'm glad not to be in this. That's actually stressful to have this unconscious uh, dominating form. There's unconscious heterosexual norming. And that comes with a whole host of um, gender norming or sexual orientation norming. Um, that is a, a stressful thing. And if, you're, if you are comfortable with those norms, you're kind of sailing right through saying, um, yeah, this is really comfortable to me. And you notice how the community kind of takes care of your needs by ostracizing people who don't fit those norms. And then Spirit Rock is a very comfortable place. It's one of the reasons we have specialized community retreats because those communities have often done a better job of throwing off the cultural norms. Then collectively they can do a, a, a greater job of celebrating and recognizing and finding the Dharma from their lens. And then they feel actually Spirit Rock is their home and then Spirit Rock gets adjusted some because we have more people of color that are comfortable here, more uh, people outside the heteronormative communities that are comfortable here. And then the makeup of Spirit Rock begins to shift and change. And it's just so sad that it gets resisted. And I see myself resisting it too. I'm sad that I do that because consciously the outcome is always preferred when I finally land on the other side of these tendencies, I'm relieved and the people around me are relieved. So this made in the management, we can do it personally. We can also think about it collectively. And what does it mean to not have unconscious management of your comfort? And what does it mean to actually allow there to be um, wise norming, wise norms like being kind to each other possibly at times allowing for there not to be kindness so we can get at honesty and then deepening honesty. So after a while, the honesty blends and the honesty is both kind and honest at the same time. There's a fear of conflict in the people who have normed spirit rock. So there's conflict avoidance and there's discomfort with conflict. That's not a healthy norm but it is how we are managing our sense of security. And then those people who are more expressive, those individuals or those cultures that are more expressive around conflict struggle here and find pushback. And those people who also have this unconscious agreement, I won't get in conflict if you don't. Okay, great. We both belong here. That's not wise, but it can become an unconscious. We're also talking some about the shadow um, and putting light on the shadow side of 
different communities. And so I'm calling out Spirit Rock as one of them. It's also happening here in this room. Spirit Rock is, we can poke at Spirit Rock, but right here in this room, it's happening. Can we be delicate and courageous to feel it at play and then not participate, but see what would the more conscious relationship to the same stream of experiences be without the unconscious defaults to um, the dominant culture. So I would like to do, because I think this is actually a juicy topic, um, I'd like you all to find yourselves in groups of three, and again, see if you can find people that you haven't met yet, but by now you might have got a sense of everybody. But just see, open up, look around the room, people you don't know so well yet, and find yourself in groups of three, and there might end up being one group of four, but uh, let's try groups of three, and just have a more open discussion. Don't let any one person dominate the discussion, or if that's happening, you can even laugh at it, saying, oh, there it is again a tendency to overtake a conversation and just see what comes up in your little groups around this topic. Okay, so find yourself in groups of three. No problem if there ends up being a group of four. And uh, we only had 15 minutes for this conversation before lunch, so... Yeah, there might end up being two groups of four. Raise your hand if you're a group of two and if you're looking for a third. Okay. Um, these are all groups of three, so you guys might split up and join a group of two groups of four. So uh, a group of three, welcome in one of your, your brothers here. Yeah. Okay. So what I would rec- recommend is um, starting with... Uh, Maybe I'll ring the bell every three minutes. Each person can just say what's on your mind. If you finish before three minutes, you can go on. But if you started at the bell and the bell comes, please move the attention on to somebody else. And just your own reflections on um, group tendencies and dominating tendencies and how do we, what do we notice. So a brave person can start. You can go clockwise. And I'll ring the bell in uh, three minutes just to give you some timing.
Um, so it's actually uh, 12.30 now. It's time for lunch. Um, what I want to do is set you up for the afternoon. And you're, if, you, if you hold the question, you actually see Vedana up and down the ladder. And can be from the Vedana connected with seeing a flower or seeing a piece of litter on the ground. Very immediate. So you can scan on that level. That's what it feels like in your body. Is there pain or something visual, something auditory? It's very personal, very immediate. And you can scan for that. And that's a good extension of being sensitive to Vedana. But then you can lift it up a little bit. And you can ask this question. What are we doing collectively? What are we doing socially? And you might feel, it, if, if you can get there, if you can start to crack the, the door in the speaks, why am I feeling shame? Oh, there are norms, and those norms are actually where this tendency is coming from. Why am I not having a good relationship to my body? All these norms are giving me standards, and those standards are where it's unpleasant. So you might be able to, to come up a level from the immediate sensory to where you start realizing, oh, we're participating in a collective stream. Both end up being true. You're, a, you're an individual walking on a path, noticing the sun and feeling it, and you have your own personal memories. And if you expand your perspective, you're part of a spirit rock retreat, and there are certain uh, patterns there, and you want them to be out of choice and out of consciousness why we're choosing them. And you could, if you wanted to, it's, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not conceptual, but it might feel conceptual to even see if you can feel into we're actually participating in a larger global arising at this point in time. And Buddhism and mindfulness is now part of North American culture, and that's kind of interesting. It's got this predominant white, heterosexual, affluent flavor to it. Can it expand? How will it expand? And, and so there's many things happening. In one way, you're just walking down the path. Another way, you're walking down the path is a part of the dawning of Buddhism in this way, on this, culture, on this continent um, for convert Buddhists. That might be very intellectual and might get you kind of heady, and so you can explore it for a little bit. Like, I, you know, I'm starting to lose it because it's just, I'm up in the realm. But you also might be able to, to, to tap in, to put the coffee straw right in. This is, this is a cultural phenomena. This has not always been this way. This is a rising phenomena culturally, and I'm participating in it. And it actually ends up being a tangible truth that might start conceptual, but you might actually be able to take this next step. I'm stepping, and that my stepping is part of our stepping, and my seeing this is part of our seeing this. And so there are times when that's actually a visceral experience, and it's not so conceptual. I wouldn't try to make that happen. Invite it, and if it doesn't come, it's okay. You're ripening your relationship to um, something more immediate. But it tends to, well, over long periods of time, also tune us into collective levels of awakening and how we're participating in that. Also, maybe ways we're collectively participating in ways that are keeping us stuck. So that's the sort of the mission for the afternoon, and we'll regroup in the evening. And one thing to say, just to kind of, I think it's an important point to put in here, 
and we can talk about it tonight, is that I, I feel that Spirit Rock is a very well-intended organization. I'm part of it now. I know I'm well-intended, and I have blind spots, and I'm waking up to them. But the consequences of the unconsciousness around Vedana management is actually really dire. And if you start putting power in the hands of unconscious people, and they're starting to see what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with, what we can see now, which is pouring over into national news, but has been seen for years in the African-American community, is how these white police often start to feel unpleasant experiences because they're interfacing with African-American culture. So they're already in a place of like, I may have to do something about this unconsciously. I think I have to manage the Vedana of my culture. This isn't good. And so horrible things are happening. People are being killed because uh, the police feel empowered and they're trying to actually reassert norms which are trying to protect what they think are collective standards, but they're actually white standards. And so the consequences of this are really uh, horribly painful. And they've been painfully for a long time, but now they're starting to break into some national awakening around this. But it's actually been centuries and centuries of white people establishing their dominance at the, at the brutal cost of African-American communities, Native American communities, and that's a, that's a whole range where we haven't even begun to really like crack our eyes on what we've done to the Native American communities. None of us want to do that. None of us want to participate in that. But collectively, we are participating in it. The good news is that you can actually feel it. And when you can feel it, you can start to choose something different. But it starts with the courage to feel it. And often that means feeling something uncomfortable and begin to wake up around discomforts and then finding that there's things you can do that you didn't know because you weren't feeling on that level. So this feeling into the body, feeling into Vedana, feeling into the mind tomorrow and the processes of awakening on the, the fourth foundation and seeing the processes that keep us. There's individual liberation and then there's collective awakening. There's large scale awakening with this same model. So that's just to could put wind in your sails that anything that we have insight to, anything we're cultivating over time, can actually expand to take on quite huge issues, quite huge patterns of, of suffering. So I'm excited for us. Enjoy your lunch. There's a lot of Vedana, pleasant and unpleasant, happening in food, in relationship to food. <clears throat> so explore the Vedana. Vedana is hard to sustain as a primary practice so you usually ground yourself more in the body, more in the direct, tangible experiences, and then you drop in the question, what is the Vedna of this salad? What is the Vedna of this tea? What is the Vedna of this step? What's the Vedna of this flower? What's the Vedna of my body? Every now and then, just uh, like sprinkling pepper on your salad, sprinkle Vedna inquiry all through your afternoon and see what you discover. You'll discover is actually, once you crack the lid on Vedna, oh my Lord, there's a lot going on that previously was unconscious. Mm. So enjoy. Thanks for your courage to participate. And I look forward to being with you this afternoon. I mean, this evening when we regroup.
Oh, sorry, and Marlena has some announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.